1: Madeline's whole thing is, you know, while some people are called to be in the convent, in the monastery, be closed off from the world uh, in order to pray for the world, in order to grow closer to God, she is like, my monastery
0: is the street. This is where I'm supposed to be. Colleen Dully talks about her biography of the French mystic Madeleine Delbrel, who wrote The Marxist City as Mission Territory, and whom Pope Francis named Venerable in 2018, Colleen also talks about her career as a Vatican journalist, the new papal constitution that Pope Francis published in March and has been working on for nine years, and her pilgrimage to the Holy Land, all on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odeniets, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today I have the great privilege of speaking with Colleen Dully. Associate Editor at America Media, where she writes and edits Vatican News and analysis. She's also the host and producer of the weekly news podcast, Inside the Vatican. She also creates Vatican Explainer videos for America Media's YouTube channel and contributes to Sacred Heart University's Go Rebuild My House blog. In addition to these roles, I'd like to ask her about her forthcoming biography of the French author, social worker, and mystic, Madeleine Delbreu. Colleen has reported national and international news for Catholic News Service, the Associated Press, the Times-Picayune, the St. Louis Review, in both print and video. Her wire service articles have appeared in publications around the world and won her numerous awards, including the 2019 and 2021 Catholic Media Association Multimedia Journalist of the Year. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, Colleen Daly. Thank you so
1: much, Chris. Gosh, that was a really long bio. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: you've done a lot. You've done a lot. Um, do, you have a, do you have a joke you like to share with us?
1: I do. Um, where does Batman go to church?
0: I have no idea. Gotham Cathedral.
1: <laughs> Good guess. The Vatican. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there you go.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, So uh, Madeleine Delbrel is a name that you first wrote in an article for America back in 2018. But I Mm -hmm. learned recently that you are writing a biography about this French mystic, a person I'd not heard of. Yeah. Who is she? Why is she important?
1: Yeah, a good way to introduce her to um, American listeners, I don't know if most of your listeners are in the States, but is to call her a French Dorothy Day. Um, There's a lot Mm. of parallels between her life and Dorothy Day's, you know, she had kind of a bohemian adolescence, then she had this conversion experience in her young adulthood and then went on to kind of give everything up uh, and go serve this community—it was a suburb of Paris that uh, was primarily communist—and this is, you know, she moved there in 1930 and worked there until her death in 1964. I might be fudging some of the uh, some mm. of the years, but. Yeah. So this is a time when tensions between Catholics and communists are really, really high in her village. There were people reportedly throwing stones at each other in the street. They refused to go to each other's businesses. So she was there as kind of a a bridge builder, just at first as a a social worker offering services. Um, And then she went on to kind of try to expand the movement, much like Dorothy Day did with the Catholic worker. Um, She had these groups called teams, a keep in French, that would uh, that would go on and, and do this work of kind of, you know, evangelization through service, I guess
0: I would say. Well, and also just those very categories, you know, you're either a Catholic or a communist seem to me like two different worlds. We usually say I'm Catholic or a Protestant. I'm a communist or I'm a free market, you know, Democrat Mm -hmm. or something like that. And that the fact that one is an economic category, one is a, a religious category. And yet they're all encompassing identity markers back in the yeah.
1: day. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. And in 1930s, this is a serious time. This is, you know, uh, I guess Lenin's dead already, but Stalin is in charge. Who knows what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Everybody, there's so many social, you know, Hitler called himself a socialist.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Russian Revolution was kind of a big part of her childhood. Her dad was really into uh, like socialist political theory. And so she grew up hearing about that a lot.
0: Yeah, and so... Um, this, France, I know, is a Catholic country. Was it also sort of a s- uh, secular, cynical kind of state at the same time? Or
1: yeah, it's really interesting. I, you're getting right into the history stuff, which yeah. I love, Madeline's. Um, I'm a historian. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I am not. So this is all, you know, just just fun stuff for me. Um, but yeah, so. Right around the time when Madeline is born, there's actually a, a French law that's kind of era defining that establishes for the first time the separation of church and state in France. That's 1905. And she's born uh, in, I think, 1904. Oh, my gosh, I'm really messing up my years. Yeah. I think you're right. Yes. 1904, October 24th, 1904. Okay. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, she is she comes onto the scene just at the moment that France is really decidedly secularizing. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting how she's born into this time of those divisions being broken down and she kind of uh, goes forward as, as a bridge builder, like I said.
0: Yeah. And it's also um a time when it's not yet clear that the communists who we consider communists, but really totalitarian dictators are such monsters. This is before mm-hmm. anyone knew all the things Stalin did, all the right. things, you know, Mao was not anybody yet. It's so, so, it's very communism. much on the
1: theory level at
0: this point. I mean,
1: you picture the the Paris of folks sitting in cafes and discussing theory, and, and that is very much the time that Madeleine grows up in, and the place that Madeleine grows
0: up in. Well, and and then you can still be a very idealistic young communist, and the wounds that communists are feeling are the same that Catholics do. They're mm-hmm. feeling sorry for poverty, for injustice, and they right. want to make a big change. They want to make God's kingdom on earth. So... There, mm-hmm. there might be a lot of com So how did she build these bridges?
1: Right. So this is a time when communism is very much a full identity, even though it's not kind of the communism that we think of as defining the 20th century. Um, and so, Madeline has to really strongly hold on to her Catholic identity because the communists are always trying to win her over. They're always having these arguments with her about like, well, like you need to be a Marxist atheist, you know? Um, and so holding on to being a Catholic is something that she does while also, you know, trying to do a lot of outreach with communists and becoming friends with them and building relationships. Um, there's a, a story about when she's in Ivry, this communist suburb that she ministered in for 30 years. Um, she gets a, a woman who is a nun, a Catholic nun, to reconcile with her brother, who is a card-carrying member of the Communist Party they she gets them to reconcile by opening a bakery together. And the three of them ran this bakery. And you know, it eventually was a colossal failure. But it's its actual mission of getting them to reconcile
0: worked. That's that's my well, that's isn't that our story right now? Where you go to Thanksgiving and there's your one uncle who's a Trump supporter, <laughs> and then there's your rebellious niece who's very woke, and mm-hmm. they they disagree on 99.9% of the things, and yet they're a family.
1: Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's also very Fratelli Tutti, right? Pope Francis' mm-hmm. encyclical yes. from fall 2020. I remember reading that and thinking of the community that he was kind of describing as you know, this. This community of a lot of differences uh, where people are able to, to come together around one shared mission. And when I was reading that, I was like, oh, this sounds like the Catholic worker. Right. It sounds also le- somewhat like uh, like Madeline's team's.
0: Yeah. And now that you say Catholic worker, that makes me this is Dorothy Day, right? That Catholic and the worker to me, that's that's the.
1: Oh, yeah. Very, very similar mission. Right. Dorothy starts the Catholic worker, launches it on May Day in Union Square, where, you know, the communist meeting place and she wants it to be an alternative to the communist daily worker newspaper. It's yeah, that's it's right there for you to see. Yeah. Yeah. So on this, this communist thing, I feel like I should just mention a couple of key points. Um, Yes. One is that as Madeline, you know, gains a reputation as a person who is working in this communist milieu, she becomes friends with the French worker priests. She's really Part of them, a friend of them, a supporter of them from the beginning. These are priests who would get jobs in factories uh, in in France primarily, and then eventually, as some of the priests uh, kind of bought a little too much into communism, more than more than the church liked, uh, the movement was suppressed and. Madeline, this is a, a moment of like a test of her faith and you really see her devotion to the church uh, in this moment. She sends out a letter to the, the worker priest movement that's kind of in tone very diplomatic, but ultimately its point is like we Are Catholics, and we have to obey the decisions of the Magisterium, even if that's not something that we totally agree with. So that's like that obedience, like like for Dorothy Day, is a really defining thing about Catholicism for her. The other thing is also that as she becomes sought after, uh, or as she continues ministering, she becomes sought after for. Her her advice on Catholic Communist relations, and she ends up writing this book I have right here called um, "The Marxist City as Mission Territory." It's a rough translation of the title. Yeah, but yeah, so this is this is kind of the defining thing of her life. Although the thing that I really love about her is her work on the missionary role of lay people, which I think is her greatest contribution to the church.
0: Wow, and that's exactly what we are now, or at least where we're trying to go next. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then. Uh, at least in the article you wrote a couple of years back, you talk a lot about how she found God or rather how God found her.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. And I just finished writing this chapter of the book. <laughs> um, so Madeline is by the time she's a teenager, even though she was baptized Catholic, she was kind of like, I hate the term Catholic in name only, but like that is what people would probably call her, uh, <laughs> or a certain subset of people in the United States right yeah. now. But, um, yeah, so she, but she's very much a, a dedicated atheist by the time she's a teenager. She writes this atheist manifesto when she's 17, which is like peak teen drama, but also clearly very sincerely <laughs> held. It's called God is Dead, Long Live Death. And it's yeah. all about how, like, death is the only certainty in the world. And, like, I get where she's coming from with this. This girl just lived through. She she moved to Paris. She's living in a train station because her father has a high up job at the train company. And through the train station where she lives every day, there are war World War One victims passing Mm. through these men on crutches and so on. And she's trying to help them. And so she has seen like her entire generation just get sucked into a war and, uh, and be spit out, be, be come back injured or not come back at all. One of her uncles goes missing. Um, and I don't think they ever find him. So I can see how she grew so disillusioned with the world and was like, yeah, death is the only certainty. But anyway, yeah. Then she, she, she meets this guy, Jean, (laughs) and, uh, and she meets his friends and she realizes that they are, just as smart as her and just as cool as her a thing you have to understand about madeline at this time is like she is really cool she (laughs) is an early adopter of all of the 1920s you know roaring 20s stuff in paris which is so fun you know she's going out dancing all night she's like wearing her homemade flapper dresses she's Mm -hmm. got her hair chopped short she's one of her first friends to do that uh and And she's incredibly smart. She wins a National Poetry Prize at age 17 uh, for this collection of... Actually, no, she wins it later. She starts writing the poems when she's 17. But she wins a National Poetry Prize. She is like a prodigy. And so, um, yeah, it's just... it's, It's really impressive. And so it's important for her to find people who are also cool and smart. And she realizes all these young Christians she's been hanging out with are pretty cool and smart. And then, you know, falling in love with Jean, she's like okay maybe maybe i can start thinking about this
0: yes and the french take they take their literary prizes very seriously
1: oh yeah, yeah. this one's a really important one yeah but uh, cool
0: and then uh, jean throws her a curveball
1: mm-hmm. yeah jean throws her a curveball they like have this beautiful 18th birthday party for her it's actually closer to when she turns 19 but she uh she it's a costume party she dresses up like a greek goddess and all of her friends talk about how you know how beautiful she looked how handsome jean looked and how they were you know dancing together all night and kind of the histories differ on whether they were actually engaged and this was like their public debut or whether they were about to be engaged according to madeline they never actually got engaged but anyway they are deeply in love and right after this jean has to go off to his required military service and like a month into it he sends madeline a letter saying hey when i get out of my two years of military service i'm joining the dominicans Mm. and she is just crushed and like at the same time her dad is sick and like her family is falling apart her her parents separate because her dad has like diabetes or something and the doctor misdiagnoses it as an STD and so her mom is like oh, really no. angry at her dad. It's mm-hmm. it is awful. And yeah. Madeline's life is just getting getting really rough. Her dad starts writing this like bitter poetry about her ex-boyfriend. It's yeah, it's really ugly. And Madeline in this moment of desperation is like, okay, I uh I think I need to start thinking about this Christianity thing. And it really just starts by her saying, "All right, if if there's a God, you have to talk to him," and so mm-hmm. she tries praying, and yeah, when she does that, all of a sudden it 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 all kind of comes together, right? And she she identifies October 1923 as uh, her, or no, October 1924 as her. Um, her conversion date. It's been about a year since Jean left. And yeah, she she goes, she sells, she gives her, she gives away her earrings, her opal earrings to the uh, the archdiocese. And she develops a relationship with this priest. Um, and after, I, it takes a while for her to figure out her mission, which I find very consoling. It takes her like seven or 10 years to, uh, to figure out Okay, here's my mission. I'm going to go to Ivry. I'm going to have, you know, the the bishop kind of send me out there, and then she she starts her mission.
0: And this is the the part where she's um, building bridges with workers.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And
0: what else do they do? Did they you know feed the poor? Do they provide schooling? What is the mission exactly?
1: Yeah, they do a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned the bakery. Uh, it's it's a lot of little things like that. They are she and the others who first started it with her were trained as social workers. And so they were literally doing social work, Uh um, programs. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know what all that includes right now. I'm kind of still researching that part, but. uh, Well, it's okay.
0: We'll have to read the book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I do know that, uh, that when world war two rolls around, because remember, she moves out there in the interwar period, um, she gets kind of conscripted. I don't know if that's the right word, but she gets pulled into the government of Ivry, which is all communist. Um, and she she gets tasked with running social programs for them because all the men are at war and she's a very capable and trained woman who's been doing this locally and knows the problems. And uh, and so she has an interesting period of her life where she has to kind of navigate being a Catholic, working in the communist government.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's um so I have I have two questions and you can pick uh, or we can do them both. One is okay. she's a catholic mystic. Mm-hmm. Um, what is catholic mysticism at this time? And then two uh well the way I think of marxists is they're trying to build a perfect society, right? Like mm-hmm. you know, like we take we say progressive you're you've got this idea of progress. Mm-hmm. You know, his, history is a one-way street and there's going to be a revolution this and that. Whereas Catholics have the same activities, which is feeding the poor. However, they do not ever believe that there will be perfection. And we know we are all uh, sinners and whatever we attempt will be Mm -hmm. be flawed. So we leave it. We leave it, right? We just let go and let God and do what do God. You know, thy will be done is our say. So um, are these connected? Are they two different questions? What do you think?
1: Yeah, um, I don't know. I never thought about the connection between kind of building a building a perfect society and honestly i'm i'm still kind of working on trying to suss out exactly what madeline's political beliefs are um i know that she's very passionate about like the works of mercy but how that takes shape politically, I'm not totally sure of. Um, mm. I know that Dorothy Day, for example, was really into you know the works of mercy, but she was very small government. She was like, people just need to be doing this on their own. So mm-hmm. I won't venture into that too far with Madeline. Okay. But this mysticism question uh, is is really interesting, and I'm excited. You said that your yeah. podcast is about to take a, a mystical turn with, yes. with the upcoming guests you have. Yes, yeah. So I, when you asked me this, I, I hunted down an article from 2014 that's all. About the mysticism of Madeleine Del Varel. Uh what can I say about it? So, you're, you were asking, what is Catholic mysticism?
0: Yes, I'm, and so I understand Catholic mysticism sort of in the sixteenth century. Mm-hmm. What does it look like in the nineteen thirties?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, I was I was reading about Thomas Aquinas' definition of Catholic mysticism and how it's it goes through this like purgative process and then unitive uh, with you know union with God. Um, The way that one of Madeline's primary biographers, Bernard Piteau, describes it is that Madeline's is similar. It's a mysticism that goes through a purgative process and then like a, a very unitive spirituality, but that it manifests in works of charity. Madeline's whole thing is, you know, while some people are called to be in the convent, in the monastery, be closed off from the world uh, in order to pray for the world, in order to grow closer to God. She is like, my monastery is the street. This is where I'm supposed to be. She actually considered being a Carmelite, so this was kind of like a hard one vocation for her. Um, and she has this gorgeous, gorgeous uh, essay called We the Ordinary People of the Streets. It's available in English. It's uh, There's a book by the same title that includes that essay and all of uh, it not all of her other essays, but some selected works. It's fantastic. But in this essay, she lays out that kind of, you know, okay, there's, there are, uh, there are people who are called to, you know, go up to the hills of the desert and look out at all the unbaptized lands that they're meant to to evangelize. She says, we, the ordinary people of the street, stand at the top of a crowded subway staircase and we look down over all the heads of people and she 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 paints the picture like some with berets on some with short <laughs> hair some with light hair whatever and uh and she's like and we see all these people who so badly need god's love and and we are the people who are meant to to do that, um, so I think that's that's a necessary thing to understand. To understand Madeline's mysticism is mm-hmm. that it's it's always like fleshy. There's always going to be uh, an incarnate aspect of it. Mm. She she's not sort of having these prayers in her head so much as she is out in the world,
0: and that it's a, a way that she sees the world. Um, so, in, when, and when you say unitive, do you mean it's unitive in the sense that I am all these? Po- Four people, I see. Right, uh, I am you, and you are me. Or well, is it that I am God, and uh, God is in me, and I and God is in every? Piece yeah, of I think
1: it's the latter. That it's God is in you. You have to be Christ to others, and that God is, uh, that God is also in the other person. So, for example, in in we the ordinary people of the streets, Madeline says um, she has this part where she kind of lapses into like a direct prayer to God, and she says, you know. God, see this uh, like lonely looking kid on the subway bench, you know, let me give me give me your mouth. Let me smile at him. She says, you know, this this old woman who hasn't had a break. Give me your legs so I can stand and offer her my seat and so on. Um, Yeah. So I don't know. To get back to that question of the definition of mysticism, I do see a big difference between sort of modern 20th century mystics and like the medieval mystics. And I wish I knew more about the people who came in between them. But I think that when I look at the modern mystics, like Madeline, like Thomas Merton, for example, I I almost have a hard time telling them apart from poets. Mm-hmm. Because it feels like they just have. I think Andrew Greeley, the author of the Catholic Imagination, would say that, like Catholics, just have a more enchanted view of the world. We can we see we see life through these like you know grace filled eyes. We can see the sacred in in the everyday. And I think that modern mystics tend to just be people who can see that more easily, or who are really committed to seeing that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I'm still working on my definition of it. I think that Aquinas, mm. you know, is is on the right track, obviously, when he's yeah. saying uh, when he's saying that there's uh, like, like a purgative element and then there's a there's a unitive element. And I like this this thing with Madeline where it's also uh, blossoming into acts of charity. But yeah, that's that's kind yeah. of all my thoughts on
0: it. There is an inter- I, I, there's a pattern that I'm sensing and I don't know exactly how to define it yet, but I do see a lot of. Uh, um, modern mystics transcending cultural boundaries. I mm. talked to a friend of mine who had been a Zen Buddhist monastery before becoming uh, a Catholic theologian. Mm-hmm. And I know that Thomas Merton uh, at Our Lady of the Redwoods, or uh, no, I'm sorry, he was in Kentucky. Gethsemane. Yeah, yeah. Gethsemane in Kentucky. Um, or, you know, uh, Richard Rohr or, or Jim Finley. Like these guys are very interested in in Buddhists, not because they mm-hmm. want to add... Uh, more personalities to God but because they think God belongs to all people across yeah. even if you have never heard the name Jesus you might still be you know deeply in love with with Jesus and uh so like and that, and I think for people who are more interested in in boundaries and um that that's uh, her- heresy and uh Uh, That's a conversation that I keep finding, but I don't know Mm -hmm. the way through it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It it makes me think of the recent, not to get super Vatican nerd on you, but the recent reform of the Roman Curia that was issued, uh, where for the interreligious dialogue office of the Vatican, he lays out what each office's mission is. And for that one, he says, it's to promote in every person, a sincere search for God, something like that. I don't Mm -hmm. know if that's the exact quote. But yeah, I feel like that's, that is the kind of approach of the mystics as well, even if they're not calling it God, right? There's to approach to, to sincerely seek out I guess the central, central truth of the world, the central animating force of the universe, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, that's, that's I think what ties them together. And it's less about these definitions. Although obviously like Catholic identity is very important to someone like Madeline.
0: Yeah. And especially, you know, this is, she did not have the internet. She was, you know, a product of, of, of Paris and the, you know,
1: yeah um, totally. in the
0: jazz age. So first of all, uh, uh, this is a great moment to talk about your podcast <laughs> sure. um, Inside the Vatican, which is where I learned about the the new constitution and where I mm-hmm. learned so many things because I can... I also listened to um, the the voice of the Pope, the, oh, yeah, uh, the sure. Vatican podcast, but mm-hmm. you know, it's always an Italian. And so I'm not sure I got everything and uh, <laughs> you, you help me those two together. Give me the context and what's going on and you define different offices and different movements. You tell me where he's been. Oh, he's going to Malta. Mm-hmm. He might go to Canada. I, um, and then also things like, Oh, he has hurt his knee. Right. Yes, like I would right not right. have figured that out without you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, so you give us so much context and background and you define things in ways that total outside outsiders can, uh, can understand. So it's, it's a, it's a wonderful podcast. And um, it gives it really, it's really helpful and it helps us understand what he's up to, because I think a lot Mm -hmm. of people will criticize the Holy father, certainly in the podcast world. And they'll say like, what's he, what's he up to? Why is he, why is he doing things differently than, than before? And, Mm -hmm. um, So how do you, how'd you get into this gig? Uh, How do you see, how do you see your, your role?
1: Yeah, um, I guess first off, I'll say it's, it's super important for us to make inside the Vatican accessible to like everyone, even people who are not following the Vatican. And so I'm really, really glad to hear you say that. Uh, as for how I got into it, this is again just a testament to me being a huge nerd. But I have wanted to do Vatican reporting since I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I, I don't actually remember this, but my best friend remembers me <laughs> saying to her sometime during the Benedict papacy, she was like, "Yeah, you you told me like that you would like to be reporting on this from Rome." <laughs> but uh, I, the real thing, you know, the backstory there is that I was just I was the friend who was like the apologetics friend, uh, back in the day, although that is so far from what I am now. Um, but yeah, like, you know, we were, we were aging into this time as teenagers at like a good school where we were taught critical thinking where everyone was examining their faith critically, as was I. And so I was looking for a lot of answers and, you know, probably spending too much time on the internet looking for those, Mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, so, and I, I developed this love for explaining really complicated things, especially about the face to people who were kind of on the outside of it or who just, you know, needed a hand understanding it. Um, so explaining it in a really accessible way. And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got into it. I took a cir- circuitous route, I guess. Uh, I started as a PR major in college, and then I realized I didn't like having to try to sell people on things and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, made a little Ignatian pro and con chart uh, and decided that journalism was actually like had all the things that I, that I liked about my communications classes at the time. Switched to journalism, uh, became editor in chief of the college paper, interned at Catholic news service interned at my diocesan paper, got this fellowship at America magazine right after college. And then I stayed there.
0: Um, And so how many years have you been at America?
1: Oh, gosh, I graduated college in 2017, did the fellowship 17 to 18, and then started full
0: time. All right. It's a great service to the rest of us. And um, and especially, you know, there's room for many, many voices in Catholicism. It's a Mm -hmm. I would like to see a very big tent where, you know, we all disagree and then continue loving God and loving mm-hmm. his people, you know, and uh, Almost like a field hospital, you could say.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a big tent where everyone's cared for.
0: Yeah, yeah. Amen. And so what is, uh, what do you think Pope Francis is up to?
1: Uh,
0: I'll tell you what, um, uh, I'll, t- I'll repeat what uh, the fellow I'm going to talk to uh, next week Um mm-hmm. Uh, says, and uh, he is Father Greg Boyle. Who?
1: Oh my gosh, that's so exciting!
0: Yeah, oh yeah, very excited. Uh, Greg Boyle. He's a guy I've known about for a long time, and I have a lot of, and he's a, I think he's a real Catholic mystic. Yeah, uh, and he would say that Pope Francis is, I think he'll say, I'll ask him Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then then we'll know (laughs) that he, he's trying to redraw the church with a bigger circle to Mm -hmm. bring more, bring more people in. And, you know, and and not that, not that interested in the little things we, we quarrel about. Mm -hmm. And, He's trying to do it slowly enough that everyone will go along. Yeah, that's uh,
1: the real thing that's hard to understand about him and, like, frustrating at times.
0: Yeah, and uh, uh, Father Greg says that there's real holiness in the waiting, you know, because mm-hmm. we in the political world today would like to have things done tomorrow, right? And oh, that's yeah, a,
1: especially as Americans. We're so, right. you know, instant gratification.
0: Right, All Right. absolutely, and and the church takes a long view, Um and the holiness is in the waiting, which I suppose, because everything matures in its own, its mm-hmm. own thing. Um, do you think you've now studied the Pope for very closely for five years? Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a fair assessment?
1: I don't know. I would I would say that your your instinct is right. That he's trying mm-hmm. to make the church a much bigger tent. I think you know I'm a big fan of Pope Benedict, uh, his theology, especially. But when when you look at what his approach to kind of problems in the church was, it was often he wanted to pursue this route of kind of purifying the church. He wanted the mm-hmm. church to be, yeah, he, he didn't mind if the church got smaller, if it was more faithful in his view. Mm-hmm. And Francis takes the opposite approach. He is a big, you know, everyone is welcome. I don't care that much. If there are things that you disagree with, um, he, he wants there to be room for that disagreement for that dialogue in the church. Uh, and he in fact says, he's like, you know, s- say it out in the open. Like I would rather have you, you know, come, come talk to me about it, come to a synod and speak freely about it and speak courageously about it. with parousia he says uh, using a Greek word. Um, than than to be like trying to hide it or seeing things behind my back or whatever and uh and it's just it's a little bit different from you know ratzinger's approach uh and I say ratzinger because I'm talking about when he was cardinal ratzinger uh-huh. uh when he was head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, that was a time when we saw a lot of theologians be investigated and so on. There was less room for disagreement within the church. So, yeah, I think that, you know, maybe allowing the arguments to come out into the light has some people worried about uh, about the state of the church right now. I'm a little bit like, I think this is also Francis's plan. Like, he, he foresaw this coming, but he would rather have us be a big, messy family arguing at yes. Thanksgiving than a family that, you know, sits silently at thanksgiving or doesn't come at all um yeah yeah so i don't know that's that's generally and we can we can get into some specifics because i know that you know there's there are so many things that we could talk about with him but yeah yeah.
0: it occurs to me and i I, i'm sure i've thought of this before but i don't remember that you know the name benedict is i associated with with withdrawing into a a, a really beautiful uh, benedictine monastery and Mm -hmm. the name francis i associate with the guy who's like Decide <laughs> let's go be friars instead. Oh, let's, totally. Let's yeah, get let's, out let's go
1: out. Yeah, and yeah. also like doing outlandish things, right? Like, yeah. you know, Francis of Assisi converts and then he like goes out to his dad or whatever and like strips off all of his clothes and goes running out because he's it's a sign of his radical poverty. But obviously it freaks everybody out. Right. And yeah, I think I don't know. I think that there is a, a little bit of the holy fool also right. in Francis, right. which I appreciate. Right. You know, you talk about mystics. Those people were crazy. I love
0: yeah. that <laughs> <laughs> and talking to wolves and birds and visiting for sure, for with sure. the sultan, you know, like all yeah, these things. Sitting that,
1: on the subway and and seeing a little bit of God glowing in everyone, like uh, yeah, of yeah. course you have to have, like I said, an enchanted view of the world to 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 be that way. Which yeah. obviously, like Benedict had too. He had a very healthy sense of wonder. Um, but yeah, it's just it manifests differently.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, maybe we have the two of them um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that represent our two inclinations, and there's room for both. Yeah, um, for sure. Okay, so you talked about this constitution, and I learned from your podcast that he had been working on it for years—like mm-hmm. eight or nine years or something. So he mm-hmm. he really parsed that. It's not. There's no accident. There's no, you know. He he no, thought yeah. of every sentence, and so he, he was moved essentially things around.
1: elected to do this, right? Like. Yeah. You know, the big the big moment that people talk about as uh, defining kind of cementing that Francis was going to be the next pope was the pre-conclave meetings. So like after Benedict resigned, they you know, he had his his kind of final end date, uh, his his two weeks notice, but it was more than two weeks. And then they have the like empty, empty seat period, the Sede Vacante, and then uh, the Cardinals all come to town and they have a couple days of meetings before they go in to vote. And that's especially important now because like the college of Cardinals is so global, you know, these people don't know each other. They have to get mm. to know each other. They reportedly have a uh, big binders with, with people's pictures in them. But yeah, at, at the pre-conclave meeting before the 2013 conclave, uh, Archbishop Bergoglio stood up and or Cardinal Bergoglio stood up and gave this speech about how the church really needed to be kind of opened up he said this is where he I think quoted John the 23rd I might be getting getting that wrong but he said you know we need to open the windows of the church and let the Holy Spirit come in let the Holy Spirit blow in Um, and he also people grew confident that he could be the person who brought the curia reform that they had wanted for so long, like they wanted Benedict to do this. Even John Paul's last one was, you know, just before he got sick. So it had been a long time. Uh, And the central offices of the Roman curia, like any Italian bureaucracy for folks who don't know, like they can get really hairy. There's a lot that's inefficient about them you know it's it's there's a lot of italian stereotypes that are sort of true (laughs) (laughs) about the way that the vatican functions and uh and also the church has changed a ton since the last uh since the last curia constitution was made in what like 1984 Mm -hmm. you know we've we've had this huge abuse crisis we've had a vocations crisis we've had the membership of the church declining in terms of percentage of the world although it's you know increasing in numbers um Yeah, so so all of this was kind of a task that that Francis was elected to take on and started working on right away. Honestly, like (laughs) we've heard for the last couple of years, oh, it's finished, it's finished, it's it's in the Pope's hands. They're just working on the translations, blah blah blah. So you know, we've been waiting on this for years. I think on Inside the Vatican in our New Year's What's Coming Up This Year uh, podcast, we've mentioned that it could be coming out for like the last three years. Yeah, which kind of makes it really weird how they finally dropped this thing which was with zero fanfare only in italian after all that talk about translations uh on a random saturday morning at like 8 a.m rome time which is like 2am for me because i'm out in new orleans uh mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah anyway but it's uh we can talk about the context of the content of the document i've
0: i've just been rambling yes no right <laughs> and so you you explained a few a few big changes what what are the
1: yeah the biggest one is the shift in kind of direction you know the shift the shift of the roman curia from The top office being the Doctrine Office, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, long known throughout history as La Suprema, the Supreme Office, the Supreme Office of the Holy Inquisition. Right. This is this dates back to the Inquisition. Um, And and it has for a long time been the top office in the Vatican, like since it was founded. And now Pope Francis has changed that. But yeah, he's made the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples, the number one office in the Vatican. And that is a huge change because that says our primary focus is evangelization and not the safeguarding of doctrine, right? Doctrine Mm -hmm. is still important. It still has a very big office uh, in the Vatican, a very important office. I should say big is, is all relative. It's a pretty small staff. But yeah, evangelization is the number one
0: thing. And by being, uh, by changing the, the hierarchy of offices, does this mean that, you know, every, every bishop in the world will now say, oh, actually, what we need to be doing here in my, you know, at in, in the Diocese of Oakland in Northern California, <laughs> we are now also following this example? Or is there something else about it? Well,
1: yeah, I mean, yeah. the hope is that it tr- trickles down, right? Um... Yeah, the Pope is clearly sending a signal of what he wants bishops to do. Bishops, in in the way that the church is structured, have a lot of freedom to decide yeah. on what the priorities for their diocese are.
0: Yeah, right. And then there are other things you said uh, that... Uh... The protection of minors. Oh yeah, that's a yeah. big one. Yeah,
1: yeah. This is actually one that um, that we're raising some questions about this week in the podcast. It, it was what we had slated uh, to to be the whole focus of the show before Pope Francis unexpectedly had this interview with an Italian newspaper. So that mm-hmm. <laughs> that took up the whole show, which came out today, May fifth. Um, but. Yeah. The Pontifical Council for the Protection of Minors started as this independent body that was meant to kind of oversee what the church is doing to uh, protect, you know, possible victims from abuse, vulnerable people, uh, and also to help abuse victims with their healing journeys. Um, So just keeping an eye on, on what the church has going on. They're not the ones who investigate cases that happens within the Discipline office of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which will now be called the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. <laughs> We're really getting technical here. Yes, yes. But that, that that change comes into effect June 5th. But in any case, uh this this commission, with the new Curia reform, with the new constitution for the Curia, becomes part of the discipline office of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Mm-hmm. And so it raises some questions. You know, some people think that this is going to make it have more institutional heft, more more power, uh, especially because it's in this unique position of being part of the CDF, but reporting directly to the Pope. But then other people are like, well, once you've made it part of the Roman Curia, you've kind of institutionalized it so it loses its independence. So it'll be interesting to see how mm. that plays out. The Pope just had his first big meeting with the, with that commission. Um, and in it, he tasked them with doing an annual audit of what the church is doing to protect people and also Uh, what the church is doing to accompany victims he especially told them that he wants to see every diocese in the world set up like a listening center to kind of help accompany people because the process of sending an abuse complaint through the vatican is grueling it takes so long Mm. for a long time there's been very very little communication with the victims um about where their case is and so on. So Francis really wants to fix that. He's been saying that since 2019 when I was in Rome to cover the summit on sexual abuse that the Vatican hosted for all the presidents of bishops conferences around the world. Uh, But yeah, this is, this is his next step towards making it happen, but there are still some questions about how it's going to happen, you know, whether like the, the question with this stuff is always who's going to enforce it. And so, We'll we'll see. Right. That that remains to be seen Uh, how yeah, how independent this commission can continue to be, what kind of power it has to make this stuff happen. Yeah. It's work in progress. I think that's that's the weird like that's the thing that you learn covering the Vatican week by week. It's like, yeah, you can you can make big declarations, whatever, which is probably what people think of popes doing most of the time. But in the end, it is really like day to day bureaucratic stuff that needs to be worked out.
0: Yeah and even the you know even the, the the idea of organizing a church on a global scale and oh, what even yeah. a, what even a church is it's a, 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 it's it's so magical to be there it's so delightful <laughs> to walk in to St. Peter's but then when I try to think about it like I'm a little bit allergic to administration
1: yeah I know if I can tell you like the first time I went to the Vatican it was for a reporting trip uh mm-hmm. and I I, you know, dropped my stuff off at the hotel. I was walking over to the press office to get my my press pass. And I like I stopped in the middle of St. Peter's Square to to look out at the basilica and the obelisk in the middle and I was like, I don't feel anything. Yeah. <laughs> like it was it was like, well, yep, it it looks like the pictures. And then later in the week when I went into the Vatican, I did the whole like get up at six AM so that you can beat the lines thing. I went in there and like <laughs> You know, found one of the like few pews in there to, to sit down to pray and like, you know, prayed for the people I said I would pray for. But I was sitting there and I was just about to fly off to the Holy Land for uh, an America pilgrimage mm. where, where I was working on one of them. Yeah. And I just had this like very clear thought come to my head that is like, I am way more a Galilee Catholic than a Rome Catholic, mm. which is ironic given my job, but I feel like it it did kind of bring me back to what the what the basis of this is. I think, you know, covering the Vatican week by week can really affect your faith. Uh, And this, that helped me realize like, oh, it's not it's not the Vatican that's at the center of everything. It's Jesus.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I've, I've been to Rome a few times, but I've never been to the Holy Land. What, what was that?
1: oh my gosh amazing uh and i was i was so lucky to go because i was just kind of working on it (laughs) promoting podcasts to, Uh to the folks who were going and like accompanying them um and yeah it was it was amazing we would travel we traveled first around galilee and then we went to jerusalem in the second half of the week and we would travel around to all these places that you've like heard the names of for your whole life, if you're a cradle Catholic, Uh, you know, we went to Capernaum, we went to Tiberias, we sat on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, we went to Cana. And at all these places, we would uh, read the the gospel passages that took place there. And actually, the thing I was really struck by was how often Mary Magdalene was there. Like, Hmm. she is, she's present in all these places. She's from Magdala, which is on the Sea of Galilee. The, the places become so much more real once you're there. And every time you hear the gospel on Sundays, you you can picture them so much more clearly, right? Like the, the nativity story where all the angels appear in the field, I can picture that field, yeah, which is crazy. Um, but yeah, so I, I was really moved by, by Mary Magdalene, especially, which made it even more moving when we got to the church of the holy sepulchre uh which is the site of you know the crucifixion and also the resurrection and like you go and you can touch the tomb which was so incredible and then we went and had a little mass in one of the like side chapels is maybe not the right word there's like little churches inside the church where you can have mass and we went in there and um Jim Martin, actually, my my coworker, Father James Martin, was reading the gospel, and we had both been having like a a fairly dry spiritual experience that time. Jim goes on this every year, but I think I was just very like, you know, concerned with work. I had just come from this yeah. road trip. And uh, and Jim reads the Easter gospel at the place where it happens, and he gets to the part where, you know, Mary Magdalene comes up, she thinks Jesus is the gardener. He turns around and he says, Mariam, and she says, Raboni, And I just, me and Jim at the same time on that Mariam just started crying. <laughs> like it was so, mm-hmm. so beautiful. And especially because that's my first name is Mary. So it it was ah. also like speaking to me. But yeah, I just, for the first time in my life, I realized like, how much love there was you know for jesus to to come appear to her first at least in yeah. that gospel and and like you know, I've, I've lost people who were close to me who have died. And so to imagine, like the one thing that you want to hear when somebody that you love dies is, is their voice again, and especially the way they say your name. Mm-hmm. And she got to hear that. <laughs> and it's just so like, it's so beautiful. I'm going to tear up now.
0: But... That's wonderful.
1: <laughs> so anyway, being, being in the Holy Land, that was yeah. that was just such a moving experience and brought the gospel alive for me in a new way.
0: Well, that makes me so happy because I having uh, I've been to uh, Egypt. I used to live in Egypt, and we went on oh, pilgrimage really? to uh, Mount Sinai. Uh, the yeah. little, um, Saint Joseph's of zamalek was our parish, and we all got on a bus and we went and we you know hiked all night and got oh, wow. and it said sunrise mass and it was great and it was delightful but i was kind of afraid that like maybe in the holy land it'd be you'd, mm-hmm. you'd be here and there you're, you'd think like oh there's supposed to be a, an olive orchard but in fact there's a strip mm-hmm. mall or something oh, like no, that there's, but...
1: they, they very closely like guard the historical places <laughs> that's it's, so it's great for real like the garden of gethsemane is still there yeah
0: no yeah. it was so that's that's a perfect place to stop i think that's such a beautiful <laughs> um uh, narrative of your experience yeah. is there anything i should ask that i have forgotten to ask or that you want to talk about or say about america or about uh anything else uh
1: i'll just say you know since since we were just talking about that pilgrimage if you want to go on it <laughs> you can <Okay. laughs> uh, america magazine pilgrimages just google it and it'll come up it's it's a beautiful experience
0: and I can i bring small it. children <laughs>
1: Uh, you know, I don't know that it's been done, but you're welcome to try, and I'm sure that they would accommodate it.
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll check it out. Right, well, cool. what a pleasure talking with you, um, Colleen, or Mary Colleen, and uh, <laughs> th- thank you so much for your time and for your work.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's, it's been a
0: pleasure. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross, be born for me, for
1: you, and hey.
0: Chris Odinitz and Colleen Dully recorded this conversation on May 5th, 2022, the feast of Pope St. Pius V, who presided over the Council of Trent and also named Thomas Aquinas the doctor of the church. It's also the 160th anniversary of the Battle of Puella, the Mexican victory against the French Empire in 1862, the Cinco de Mayo. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Their website is www.gscoasterband. Com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is taken from a stained glass window at Santo Domingo de Silos, New Burgos, in Spain, and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odenius. Email me, Catholics at gmail.com. And I thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.
1: This... This is Christ the King, whom shepherds, God, and angels sing.